Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 846. Peter Egan actually probably said it best, and what he said was, to read this book is to feel blessed by fortune that you ever got to drive an MGTC, an E-Type, or a Healy 100, and to realize that nothing was preordained. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, John Nickus. Hey, John, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Always. I know you are. I know you're always ready. John Nickus has dedicated his life to British sports cars, which has seen him own and race models from most of the country's great marks. Born into an Anglophile household, he learned to clean oil spots and diagnose electrical gremlins from a young age, which has served him well in later life, indeed. As an accomplished vintage racer, he has collected multiple class championships, a special awards for his time behind the wheel of various Austin Healy's, Jaguars, and Triumphs, the overall champion of the Mille Miglia North American Tribute in an Austin Healy 100. How cool is that? John's unlikely victory was featured in a television special that aired on the Bravo channel. John has authored several books on a number of automotive subjects, including the critically acclaimed Rule Britannia, When British Sports Cars Saved a Nation, not to mention hundreds of articles and columns from various publications and websites. A frequent speaker and panelist at automotive events, He's particularly known for his entertaining opinions on automotive evolution and history, as well as the future of classic cars in the 21st century. And I had the good fortune of talking to John recently at the Quail event, and I got to enjoy looking through Rural Britannia. What a wonderful book, a collaboration with, of course, Michael Furman, a fantastic photographer who's been on the show before, and one very lucky Cars Yes subscriber is going to win a copy of this book. Compliments of Coach Bill Press. John, I have told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little more about your history and your passion for those old British cars? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, it's kind of interesting. That bio says some of it, but really doesn't tell the whole story. So it was more than just an Anglophile household. My dad had a real aversion to what he called Axis cars, which would be cars built in Italy, Germany, or Japan. So that really limited my car options growing up to things that were made in Britain and things that were made in America. And for whatever reason, despite growing up in Southern California, I never gravitated to American cars. But the fact that we always had a British sports car in the driveway kind of pushed me in that direction. Well, you know what's really cool about this is my passion for cars started with British sports cars. When I was about four or five, my dad bought an MGTC. And I remember sitting in the driver's seat, which was actually the left side where the steering wheel was actually on the right side of that car. And he used to have a, he had a spare steering wheel he used to hand to me and we'd drive around. I pretend like I was driving and we'd pull up next to people and they'd look down and go, what's that little kid doing driving that car? So, uh, yeah, the British sports cars go way back. In fact, the first sports car I ever rode in, I was about eight months old, was an MGA. I'll have to send you a picture of that sitting in the lap of my mom. I'd definitely love to see that. And it's funny. I think that. For many collectors, regardless of what they collect now, the British sports car was the gateway drug into the hobby because they were affordable, accessible, and fairly easy to work on. 
Right. And you think about some of the great racers back in the day. Those are the cars they started in. Old MGs, because they were affordable. Uh, they could buy them. They could beat them to death and get another one pretty easy. Parts were fairly available. So this is all very cool. We're going to learn a lot more about you as we continue on your journey. But first, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah. So, John, take the wheel. Well, there was a Roman senator named Seneca who wrote, Prosperity unbruised cannot withstand but a single blow. But a man at constant battle of misfortune develops a skin calloused by time, such that if he falls, he can continue to fight upon one knee. I love that. Well, how have you incorporated that concept specifically into this book project? Because I want to focus on this book during a lot of our talk today because it is an absolutely spectacular book and you couldn't have teamed with a better guy. So when I think about that quote, how does that relate to this project and your history of driving old British cars? You know, I hadn't thought about it until you asked for that quote, but that quote really epitomizes the British car industry. Because unlike the car industries in other countries, the one based in Britain really had to endure really unimaginable horrors as they continued on, especially after the war. A lot of them had their factories damaged by German bomb. They had employees that were killed or maimed and unable to return to work. And, you know, after 1945, when the labor government was elected, they had to deal for the first time in four decades with politicians that didn't have the same level of enthusiasm for the car industry that existed before and really responded to those challenges time and again in ways that were almost emblematic of the British bulldog spirit that we now think of as, as part of the natural, you know, national culture. Right. Ah, very well said. And, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, you bring up a good point of how when government rule changes, how that can affect an industry and in so many ways, good and bad, of course, and make it very, very challenging. But the challenges that England had to overcome after the war are unimaginable. And they somehow pulled out of the rubble and did it. Well, you know, it's interesting that the subtitle of the book is When British Sports Cars Saved a Nation, and, and that's not just kind of a bit of marketing fluff or hyperbole. I mean, it's really true. Without British sports cars, it's doubtful whether Britain would have survived in the way that we know it now, you know, as a still dominant world power, because things were so dire in those days immediately following the war. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I'd love for you to share with us what instigated your goal to write this book. Again, the title's Rule Britannia, When British Scars Saved a Nation. Take us to a point in time when you decided that this was the story you wanted to tell. Well, I've always loved British sports cars, and I've always written about them. But this is a tale that really hasn't been told before, which is, is how they responded to the national pleas for hard currency to help pay down some of the war debt. It's funny to think that in many ways, Japan and Germany were in much better shape after the war than England was, despite having having won the conflict, because both those countries received aid from the United States to rebuild um, their tattered economies, while Britain really didn't have that because the United States and Canada cut it off um, in 1945. So they really didn't have a lot of the advantages that some of those economies did when they got back to you know peacetime footing. Exactly. And, you know, for those who would hear these words and say, what? We didn't help our ally, but we helped the people that we, we, you know, beat in the war. Why on earth would we do that? Well, I mean, part of it was economic and part of it was limited resources. But in 1945, without notice, the United States ended its Lend-Lease program 
with England. And unfortunately, the following winter in 1946, England had the worst winter it had had in decades. And things got so, so bad that the British government had to go to the United States and Canada and ask for more money to survive. And this isn't for, you know, money to build the economy. This was for money to eat. Mm-hmm. So the United States and Canada gave them an emergency loan that was so big that it wasn't paid off until 2006. Whoa. Wow. That's incredible. Man. It boggles the mind to think of how bad things were for Britain. In fact, you look at, you know, what we think of the, of the age of prosperity with GIs buying new houses and new cars and everything else. But in England, until 1954, if you walked into a restaurant, you only had one option off the menu because they still had rationing of food and most other consumer goods well into the mid-1950s. You know, this is absolutely spectacular, and I love the fact that we're kind of going down this history lesson here because these are things most people have never known about, never learned about, uh, wouldn't know about because you just think of a, a country that wins a war being victorious and everything's grand. And, of course, what happened in the U.S. after uh, the war, which you mentioned, things were pretty darn good here. So very, very fascinating. Well, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down while you wrote this book and share with us some of the challenges you faced during the project, but more importantly, how you overcame those challenges and what you learned from them. Well, I think the hardest part was being able to figure out how I wanted to tell this story. And really, this book started, I guess, six or seven years ago when Michael and I were talking with Denise McCluggage. Denise really was supportive of anything I did. And she really pushed me to, you know, tell a story that I was passionate about. And, and this is one that I think I always had a great deal of passion for. And a lot of it was collecting the economic information, the historical information that went into the book, because unlike a standard car book that has a lot of specifications and facts and figures about the cars themselves, this is a book that you could read cover to cover and that tells a story against the backdrop of World War II and the days following it that really talks about the people involved and the way that they were intertwined and the really incredible ways they went about resurrecting their companies and fulfilling their personal visions in the automobile. Well, the great late Denise McCluggage, I was so fortunate to have her as a guest here on Cars. Yeah, I know you guys were friends and to have the support of somebody like that behind you and then collaborate with somebody with the skills that Michael Furman has with his photography prowess. Boy, you've teamed up with some great people there. So, and of course, the results are uh, reflective of that. Well, thanks, Mark. And it's really also important to say that this book is not just mine and Michael's, but there are incredible contributions from Lord March, of course, who created uh, the Goodwood Revival and Alan Decadene, and Robert Cumberford, um, the famed designer, as well as Graham Robson and Timothy Whistler, who is the foremost academic in the world dealing with the rise and fall of the British motor industry. So it's kind of an all-star cast working together to tell this tale and do it in an entertaining fashion. Oh, absolutely. Those are some prominent names there you just tossed out. So what a team, what a winning team. Well, let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share a story where you kind of came up with an aha moment while you were coming up with the whole concept of this book, and tell us how that aha moment helped make the book a reality. Well, the hardest thing was to figure out a way to tell it as a single narrative while still covering the history of the eight marks that are profiled in the book. And 
it took a probably six months to figure out how to get the words down on paper that did justice to the story. And what I finally figured out was I started each chapter for each of the manufacturers covered with what they were doing during the war as the bombs were falling, as the war was going on. So it really is a common theme that kind of joins the the book together. And it really kind of builds upon each successive chapter as you figure out how desperate these guys were and looking forward to the piece that was bound to come and how to build their cars again. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Well, that's another piece, and, and I'll mention it again, that I love about this book because most of the car books that I have, and I've got a lot of them, I've got, I think, all of Michael's books, are are beautiful. They talk about the cars and everything, but the history of a country and a nation and how it relates to cars is very rarely a piece of the picture. Usually it's talking about a driver or a team or a manufacturer or the person behind that, like a Henry Ford or somebody. But this takes it to a whole nother level. And I love history. And just by going through this book, I've learned so much I did not know, which is really, really cool too. And I, I know that uh, the listeners out there that get their hands on this book will learn a lot as well. What makes this book so special for you? And why are you so proud of the final publication? Well, Really, it's just to get the story down on paper for the first time of of how much I think we owe. And I mean, we not just as British car enthusiasts, but we owe as as car enthusiasts in general for the effort and dedication and perseverance of a really small band of British manufacturers who survived long enough to get the you know their cars out. And if you look at the sports car movement in the United States, it is almost entirely based on British sports cars. You know, the MGTC is widely acclaimed as the sports car that America loved first, and it was followed shortly on the heels by the Jaguar XK120. So before there were Ferraris and Mass, before Porsche arrived, um, and certainly before the Japanese came, it was British sports cars that really lit the fires of enthusiasm um, in American enthusiasts. You know, if you look at the pages of Road and Track, in those days, the late 1940s and early 1950s, it's almost entirely populated by British sports cars. Right. And so it's important for us to understand where we came from. Absolutely. Yeah. I know as a little kid, after having my dad's MGTC around and then getting older, I think one of the first cars I wanted was a little Triumph that belonged to a neighbor across the street. And, oh, I wanted that car so bad. But I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke on the phone yesterday. My dad said, do you want a car you can drive every time or a car you have to work on all the time? <laughs> and uh, I ended up with a Carmen Ghia, but uh, a good buddy bought that car. And, of course, the engine grenaded a few months later. So <laughs> I dodged that bullet. But... uh I think I would have learned a lot, too, working on that little car. So I've always had a special place in my heart. And Austin Healy's, which we're going to be talking about those tomorrow, and I'll let our listeners know that I've got John coming back tomorrow because we're going to talk about something different. He's got such a story to tell that I decided to, to have him come back tomorrow and share that with you. But that's a little tease for tomorrow. But the, uh, the Austin Healy's are just gorgeous, gorgeous cars. So uh, we'll learn a little bit more about that in your future. Tell me about, are there other books that you've written that uh, relate to this book or are different topics? Well, I'm working on a series for Amberley Publishing in the UK that's kind of like a thumbnail sketch of all the great British sports car models. And that also does include um, some of the Italian and German ones too. But, you know, a lot of the 
the things that I've done have always been focused on British sports cars, one of which is the British Sports Car Companion for Bentley Publishing, which is a monster, you know, 800-page work on how to own, maintain, and enjoy these cars. So, I mean, everything kind of has built up to this. And this really is, you know, what Denise called at the time, my magnum opus. <laughs> yes. A love letter to the hobby. I like the way you put that. That's cool. Was there anything about the book that you wish you'd done a little differently? Uh, you know, no, but I wish there had been more room to include more of Michael's photographs, because if you don't know Michael Furman... Uh, yeah, you don't know cars. <laughs> yeah, You don't know cars. I mean, you certainly do once you see the photographs. Yeah. If I had my my druthers, it would be a you know 500-page book filled with his photographs and on every other page because they're just so amazing. Right. And it makes me happy to know that a rubber bumper MGB, which is considered one of the least desirable post-war classic cars, has the same loving touch applied to it by Michael's lens as he does when he shoots Bugattis and, and Ferraris. Yes. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, Michael's been a guest here. He was a very early guest here on Cars. Yeah. Uh, for those listeners, if you missed that show, you can find it on the Cars yeah website. Just go back to CarsYeah.com, type in the guest star, click on the guest bar, and you'll be able to type his name in there and listen to his story. And then, of course, go out there and see Coach Built Press and his website and his photography. And I think almost everybody listening, once you see one of his pictures, you go, oh, that guy, <laughs> that guy, because his photographs really do stand out. Well, you mentioned this uh, future project. Is that the only project you're working on in the future? Or are there some things that have you fired up and excited about this year? Well, I'm working on an autobiography for Bob Tilius, um, which is exciting as a Triumph guy and, and certainly is exciting, I think, for the Jaguar folks as well. And I'm also doing another project with Michael, which is the third volume in his automotive jewelry series. And this one's going to focus on championship trophies that people receive during the early age of, of motorsports. Oh, how cool is that? That's going to be fantastic. I I have a couple of old vintage racing trophies that I bought from eBay and so forth, which are pretty beautiful. And there were some wonderful ones on display at the lodge in Pebble Beach when I was there last week in one of the little windows of the stores there that was selling old things. But that's going to be spectacular. It must be interesting finding out about the history of these trophies. Well, I'm looking forward to it because it's really the first thing that isn't directly automotive related that I've ever written about. And so I'm really curious to see kind of how these trophies developed and, and under what circumstances they were created. And, and in many cases, you have these really minor races that have these fantastic and fabulously ornate trophies attached to them. So I'm really curious to see how that all happened and transpired during that age. Very cool. Is there an author out there that has inspired you that you'd like to share? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you know, I have to say Denise McCluggage because yeah. she has mm -hmm. just been so important to me. But, you know, I think there's not a British car enthusiast in the world that isn't touched by Peter Egan. Oh, yes. You know, he is, I guess, our bard. Um, I started reading him, you know, when I was a very young boy, you know, probably 10 or 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny. One of the things that just makes me absolutely giddy is, is to be able to call him and, and pick up the phone and talk to somebody that I had considered you know, to be on the Mount Olympus of automotive journalism for so long. And it's a thrill that he got to see this book and contributed a review for it. 
and that kind of stuff I really enjoy. I've loved him forever, and maybe you can connect me with him. I would love to have him be a guest on this show. I've had so many authors and journalists on the show, but of course, I hold him in very high esteem. Same reason as you. I've been reading him since I was a little kid. I feel like I know the guy uh, because of everything. And his books, I remember one early when I bought Leanings, I believe it was titled. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's an awesome guy. Well, we're going to go to the last lap in a second, but first, and we're going to touch on it a little bit on tomorrow's show, but I'd love for you to share just a little snippet of some of your racing experience because you've jumped in a bunch of old British cars and gone out on the track and uh, taken them to speed. Touch a little bit of the base. Give us a little tease to tomorrow's show of some of the cars you've raced. Well, I mean, I've raced probably almost every British sports car you can imagine, and it really gives you a good grounding. And the fact that you touched on it earlier that so many, you know, legendary race car drivers start out in British sports cars is no coincidence. Almost all of them are underpowered. Um, almost all of them tend to understeer um, at the limit, which really teaches you to drive smoothly and, and to essentially drive with what we call, you know, a momentum car. Yes. And so it thrills me to compete against much more refined machinery in like a TR4 or a TR6 or a Jaguar XK120 or any of the Austin Healy's because you really have to be a smooth driver who knows what you're doing on the track. And I love the fact that I've been able to drive some more exotic machinery, but I always return to my British roots because it's almost elemental in that it ties you back to the early days of, of road racing where, you know, there were entire grids composed of MGTCs and TDs and MGAs and MGBs. Um, and that really is the hobby as it was back then. Right. It's it's fantastic. I'm really proud to say the first car I ever raced was a 1960 Lotus 18 Formula Junior that I raced for about a dozen years or so. And it, it, a momentum car, of course, uh, low power and uh, drum brakes. So you had to be a little careful with what you were doing, but a uh, wonderful car to learn how to go out and learn car control. And it was just like driving a little jewel in many cases because of the very small steering wheel and small tubes that were per somewhat protecting me. Thank goodness they never had to protect me. Nobody slammed into me or anything, but uh, that was a great little car and then jumped from that into a Lola, which was a whole different experience, a T290 sports racer, which <laughs> woke me up. That, that's a wholly different experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, a few years ago, I did a rally cross event in the Midwest during the middle of winter. And, you know, it was snowing, the, the track was, the course was fairly muddy, and everybody was out there with four-wheel drive BMWs and Evos. And I was out there in a Sunbeam Alpine that made about 80 horsepower on skinny 13-inch tires. Oh, my gosh. And I think they were laughing, um, A, because the car was so old, and B, because I don't think they'd ever seen tires that narrow before. They stopped laughing when I set the fastest time of the day um, <laughs> by almost a full second. Nice. And I, I talked to them afterwards and just had a little discussion about car control and, and momentum, yeah. that there was no way they were going to get all that power down with tires that wide in those conditions. Yeah. But that little car with, you know, such narrow rubber actually was made for, for conditions like that. Exactly. Very cool. I love that. Well, John, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah! sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. 
Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right, 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom-patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Okay, John, we are back and we're entering the last lap. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best book writing advice you ever received? Denise once told me that the difference between a professional writer and an amateur writer is a professional writer can write every day. And that really is something that has resonated with me, and it's something I've tried to keep close to heart. Great advice from a great lady who knew what she was talking about, both behind the desk and a pen and behind the steering wheel. And I've heard this from many, many guests who've been on the show, both artists and writers. Every day you got to sit down and write, or you got to sit down and create, and you just have to do it, no matter what your mood you just got to sit down and do it and do it and do it. Great advice. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your ability to complete this project and others? Well, probably the most important thing that's happened in this project is I recognize when I can't do something. And so part of the reason for this all-star cast is there were just certain things that I wasn't either qualified to talk about or didn't know enough to talk about. And the ability to to pick up the phone and enlist help from others has been absolutely fundamental to the success of this book. You know, getting someone like Robert Cumberford to talk about automotive styling or Graham Robson, who's written 1,200 books to talk about the demise of the British motor industry, um, or Alan DeCadney talking about just the passion that he has for these cars really, I think, made it. And sometimes you have to know what you can't do, and that makes for a better product in the end. Absolutely. And as I said before, and you did all-star cast indeed. What kind of resources did you access other than these fantastic people in writing Rule Britannia? Well, I've got about a 1600 book library on British sports cars. So a lot of it was that. And then we also had to go kind of across the world. Fred Simeone at the Simeone Museum was absolutely just perfect in how he dealt with us and getting us some period images as were the folks at the British Motor Industry Heritage Trust Museum in Gaydon and the Rev the Revs Institute down in Florida. Fantastic. Fred's been a guest here on the show, and, of course, his prowess in cars and collection and museum are fantastic. So nice to have him as a resource as well. Now, the book is available for listeners today, right? Correct. It came out last week. It was uh, presented at the Pebble Beach Chairman's Dinner just, uh, I guess, a little under a week ago. And it can be purchased on the Coach Built website, uh, 
or on Amazon.com. There you go. And I'll make sure, listeners, I put links to how to get your hands on this book. And having put my hands on this book and looked through the pages while I was at the Quail talking with John and Michael, this is a book that you've got to have on your library shelf. It is it's spectacular. It's wonderful. It's great. I love it. So uh, I can uh, I can just tell people that if you're not the lucky subscriber that wins this book here on Cars, yeah, go out and get yourself a copy. Well worth having. All right. It's time for the checkered flag here. If you had one singular message that you'd like our readers to get from reading this book, Rule Britannia, when British sports cars saved a nation, what would that message be? Well, you know, I'd like to actually, you know, have come up with something good, but Peter Egan actually probably said it best. And what he said was, to read this book is to feel blessed by fortune that you ever got to drive an MGTC, an E-Type, or a Healy 100, and to realize that nothing was preordained. And that's really it, that there is an entire story behind these cars that we love, and it was a struggle. And it was a momentous struggle and an epic struggle. And the fact that it happened at all means that we're just incredibly fortunate to have lived through this golden era. Absolutely. And we're very fortunate that you have brought this book to our shelf, John. I'm so excited and happy to uh, to be able to be given a copy away and to have my own copy and to be able to talk to you about this book today. You've taken us on a very, very special ride. I've really enjoyed learning more about this book. I learned even more than when I was standing there across the table talking to you at the Quail. I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Car Shout listeners. Is there one parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer before you drive off into the sunset in that old British car? Well, I think any British car owner will understand this, and that advice is press on regardless. I love it. I love it. And again, the best way for you listeners to get your hands on a copy of Rule Britannia is go to Coach Bill Press or go to Amazon, or you can go to John's show notes page here on the Cars website. I'll have links there. Easy one-click links so you can go and purchase a copy. And again, one lucky subscriber is going to win a copy of this book, Compliments of Coach Bill Press. So just go to carsyad.com, click on the free book button. I'll send you my free book, The Filler Up Book, and your name will be in the hat. Ah, one lucky person. Well, John, thank you for spending time with us today and being so generous and sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. And remind our listeners, tomorrow, John's going to be back to talk about another project that is very near to his heart, This is something you don't want to miss, so tune in tomorrow to Cars Yeah. But until we talk again, I'll see you, John, down the road. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. This was fun. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design, and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garages built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. 
Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.